Welcome to the preaching podcast of Poplar Springs Baptist Church in Hiram, Georgia, and the preaching ministry of our senior pastor, Wayne Meadows. It is our desire that the message you hear today would call you to a closer walk with Jesus Christ, and that your life would give glory to God as you apply the biblical truths proclaimed. For more information about the ministry of Poplar Springs Baptist Church, check us out on the web, www.psbchurch.net. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the preaching of God's Word. All right, let's get into the Word this morning. Joshua chapter 5, Joshua chapter 5, the first 12 verses. I've titled today's sermon, Wait Just a Minute. Wait Just a Minute. Waiting is one of the most difficult disciplines uh, that we can develop. We all struggle with patience, especially when we find ourselves in a, a place of life or a season of life where everything is propelling us forward. That's where we're at in our study in Joshua. The last two chapters especially, Joshua 3 and Joshua 4, have moved us forward uh, geographically uh, in coming into the land of promise. In Joshua 5, we are now inside the promised land. And all of the forward momentum is there to keep moving us further into that land. But in these 12 verses of Joshua 5, the Lord pumps the brakes. He says, wait just a minute. Before they possess the land fully, before they come to inhabit these cities that they will overthrow and uh, live in, the Lord says there's some other matters that they need to get set right. So let's hear the word of God this morning. Joshua chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gabeth Haraloth, And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to give uh, to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. 
And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. And may the Lord bless this morning the reading and the preaching of his word. Wait just a minute. Here we are coming to Joshua 5, and the excitement is continuing to build. Last Sunday, in very dramatic fashion, we crossed the Jordan River with the people of God. He stopped the waters from flowing. They grabbed these 12 stones and erected them as a memorial, constantly reminding them of the mighty power of God. The land is at their fingertips now. The cities they will soon possess. But we come to Joshua 5 in these opening verses, and everything slows down. Wait just a minute. Stop the forward momentum for a moment. The Lord wants them to zero in on something of greater priority than possessing the land. He wants them to come back again to examine the relationship that they have with Him. This morning, as we think about these 12 verses in Joshua 5, I want to break the text down for us in in three parts. Three parts to the text that help us get a a grasp of what's actually taking place uh, in these verses. And then three important lessons that we can learn from God telling His people to wait just a minute. So let's look back into the text. Three parts, three sections with a little bit more detail. Section number one is the opening verse. I refer to it as a pause, a pause. The slowing of progress, the the slowing of momentum, the pumping of the brakes. Here's what I mean by that. Verse one of chapter five gives us a back glance and a forward glance. It looks back to the miracle that the Lord had just performed and and bringing them across the Jordan at its uh, most dangerous time of the year. And it tells us that all the kings of the Amorites and all the kings of the Canaanites, basically it's a way of describing all the people of Canaan from north to south, east to west, word had reached them already of the mighty miracle that God had performed. He had stopped the waters. He had gotten his people across. And upon this news, the, the inhabitants of Canaan, the citizens of this land, their hearts melted within them. What Rahab said in Joshua chapter 2 is uh, now being revealed even further. You remember back in the story of Rahab as the spies came to her house? She told them, we have heard the stories already. We, we know the God of Israel is a mighty God, a living God, a strong God. And the people's hearts, they, they tremble at him. Well, now another great exploit has been done. That news has been broadcast through the land and their hearts are still in defeat. At the end of verse 1, the narrator tells us there was no longer any spirit in them. Literally, the fight was gone. They were putting up no resistance. They knew they couldn't stand against the God of Israel. Now, everything about verse 1, from a military operation standpoint, would tell us now is the time to strike. Now is the time to keep moving forward. 
uh, in, in essence, you've got the enemy on the run. All the momentum is on your side. Don't take your foot off the accelerator. Push it to the floor and keep pressing further inward. But that's not what God has his people do. Instead of continuing on into the land, instead of continuing on and conquering Jericho at that moment, the Lord has them pause. He stalls their momentum. This goes entirely against everything that we know about wisdom in this world. Think about some of the sporting events that you're familiar with, whether it be a football game or a basketball game. We know the team that has all the momentum in that moment has the advantage. I mean, they're pushing the ball down the field. They're scoring more baskets. Everything is on their side. And you know what the opposing coach will often do in those moments? He'll call for a timeout. Unless they're really shady and really dirty, and then they'll have one of their players fake an injury on the field, right? Figures. But they're doing anything that they can to slow the momentum of the team that has it. They're trying to cause a break. They're trying to to cause a pause because if they can slow that momentum, perhaps they can regain the advantage or at least get back into the fight. Here, God's people have all the momentum. And what seemingly is to us an act of foolishness, God says, stop just a second. Slow down. Take a moment. He has them pause. Why is that? Well, that brings us to the second part of the text. It's really the heart of our passage this morning. It's verses 2 through 9. He has them pause because of a procedure. Now, if you were listening carefully or looking carefully in God's word as we read verses 2 through 9, you notice that the word circumcision or circumcising appears quite frequently. I'll not get into the details and what that act involves. I think most of you today are familiar with that. In the Old Testament, the act of circumcision for the people of God was the sign of the covenant that they enjoyed with God. It was a sign that marked them as being in relationship with Him. We come to verse 2, and the Lord speaks to Joshua. The Lord is giving another command, another instruction. It's not keep going forward. Instead, it's get this procedure taken care of. He begins by saying, make flint knives. At the first reading, we hear that, and that seems to make some sense. We need some knives. We're going to go to war. There's going to be battles. We need some weapons. We need some knives to take to this fight. But when you keep reading, you suddenly realize that these knives are not going to be used upon the enemy. They're to be used within the camp. What? Are you kidding me? Instead of cutting up the enemy, the Lord wants his own people to cut themselves, to to go through this procedure. Why? Well, the text tells us the reason that this was to happen. It's because the generation that had been born during the wilderness wanderings uh, that, that proceed them coming into the land of promise, they hadn't partaken in this covenant sign. Their fathers who came out of Egypt, they had been circumcised. They had experienced this procedure. But as they raised their children, as they wandered through the wilderness, they did not bring them to that sign, to that place. Now, this sign was important. Because it it reminded them that their their covenant with God was established upon a relationship. And as they came into this land of promise, that needed to be squared away. That needed to be settled. They needed to remind themselves once again that they were in a covenant relationship with God. And this was a way of renewing that and recalling that. 
But isn't it striking? The Lord wants them to do this right now. They've got the forward momentum. He's already paused them. And now he tells them, you take all the men of Israel, all the men of war, have them undergo this procedure, and then have them lay around for a week to recover. That doesn't seem like a very sound military strategy, does it? You take all your fighting men and you basically render them incapacitated for a period of time. If you want to understand just how dangerous that can be, go back to the book of Genesis and read Genesis 34. There you find the sons of Jacob seeking revenge for the treatment of their sister. And they go about it by the men of the city in which she was being brought into a marriage. Uh, They had them undergo this same procedure, had them circumcised. Now, while they were in the process of recovering, they slaughtered them. Why? Because they couldn't do anything. They couldn't fight back. Now the Lord has placed his people in what is seemingly a helpless situation. He stopped their momentum. He's rendered them incapacitated through this procedure. But nevertheless, Joshua obeys. The circumcising of the whole nation took place. They remained in their places in the camp, verse 8, until they were healed. And then in verse 9, the Lord speaks again. It's the, the words of God that bookend this particular part of our text. He gives the instruction for circumcision a second time, the second generation. Having it uh, taken place, he then speaks again, and he tells them, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. It's here that we get an understanding of the name Gilgal. We saw it last week. That's where they were camping. But at that point, we didn't understand why the name Gilgal was given. Gilgal in the Hebrew literally means to roll off. To roll away. And here the Lord is saying, because you have obeyed, because you have uh, undergone this procedure, because circumcision has taken place, I have rolled away, Gilgaled, the reproach of Egypt from you. What does he mean by that? Well, the reproach of Egypt is understood in various different ways. Some think that it could refer to uh, the slander that the people of God suffered while they were in Egypt, uh, the hardships that they endured, the shame that they endured there. But I believe when he speaks of the reproach of Egypt and it being rolled away from them, them not bearing that shame anymore, is that it speaks more specifically of the guilt and the disobedience that the people of God incurred as they came out of Egypt. And the fact that you had an entire generation of men who did not lead their families to undertake this sign that would mark them as the people of God. And so now that that has transpired, the procedure has been uh, undertaken, now the Lord is saying that guilt is rolled away from you. That reproach, it is no more. You're marked as mine. So the pause was instituted, a procedure was enacted, And then we come to the last section in the text, and there's a Passover that is celebrated. A Passover that is celebrated. There's an important order in these parts of the text. The pause took place so the circumcision could transpire. And the circumcision needed to transpire in part so that Passover could be participated in. In the Old Testament, it was a clear law of God that no male could participate in the Passover meal unless he had been circumcised. 
So now that that is out of the way, the Bible tells us in verse 10, the people who were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. It's interesting there in verse 10 that we're given another uh, temporal marker. There's another time indication that is given. If you remember back in our previous studies, we've seen a few of these sprinkled in along the way. Rahab hid the spies under flax. It was the time of harvest in which the Jordan River would expand its banks. Previously, we saw that they would head out to cross the Jordan four days prior to the Passover date. And now, here camped at Gilgal, recovering from circumcision, they keep the Passover. This is the first Passover meal that would be celebrated in the land that God was giving them. This Passover was a memorial meal that would look back to Egypt and what God had done in bringing them out of bondage and bringing them across the Red Sea. But it was also a meal that would cause them to look forward as well to the blessings that God was giving them now. And so on that day, they observed it. They kept that memorial. They they once again practiced obedience to God. Then verse 11 tells us the day after... They continued on in following God's commands. Following the the feast of Passover was the feast of unleavened bread, a feast that would stretch for a period of days. And verse 11 seems to indicate that that's what they then entered into because they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, which would be a menu item uh, that would be found in the feast of unleavened bread. So they're centering their lives now around the ways of God. Their priorities are being established. And then in verse 12, the Bible tells us the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. You're familiar with the story of manna. Those little white wafers that would fall from the ground each morning that they could go up and pick up and would supply their food for the day. The Lord gave that to them because of their grumbling and complaining to sustain his people. But he also gave it to them to teach them a lesson. You remember back in Deuteronomy as Moses is describing the manna for the people? He says, you're getting this so that you may learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God. That what we need more than physical sustenance is spiritual sustenance. We need the word of God to sustain us. And what had happened to the the generation in the wilderness? They had forsook the word of God. They were no longer living by the word of God. They hadn't learned that lesson. But now we have this new generation who has taken the sign of the covenant, who is keeping Passover, who is remembering the feast, and now they need manna no more. Yes, they are in the land of promise, but they are also ordering their lives by the word of God. They're learning to live by God's commands. When we understand that this is what's happening in these 12 verses, we can perhaps begin to understand why it is the Lord said, you need to wait just a minute. There's some lessons that you need to learn. So how do these 12 verses impact our lives? What are those lessons for us? Let me give you three this morning. Number one. In our text today, we learn the lesson that opportunity doesn't equal obedience. Opportunity doesn't equal obedience. The opportunity was there for them to continue on into the land of promise. 
for them to take Jericho, the other cities that were there before them. The opportunity was theirs for the taking. However, had they seized that opportunity, they would not have been in obedience to God. Opportunity doesn't equal obedience. What we learn here is that faithfulness must come first. Faithfulness must come first. Now, there are some very obvious situations in our lives where we know this lesson, we understand this lesson, that everything that is put before us doesn't mean we necessarily need to do it. There are some things that are blatantly clear and obvious. We shouldn't do those things. It's more of a trap and a temptation from the enemy. Just because the opportunity is there doesn't mean that you go into it. But I believe for many of us today, especially followers of Christ, we struggle when the opportunity that's before us is a really good one or perhaps even a great one. Let me remind us today that busyness doesn't always equate to godliness. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something, nor does it mean that it's the right time to be doing something. Opportunity doesn't equal obedience. Obedience and worship of God must be our first priority. I'm reminded of the story of Saul in 1 Samuel 15. The first king over the nation of Israel. This is later in their history. And he's given the instruction from the Lord to go and to destroy the the, the Amorites, to destroy their king, to destroy all that they have. And as Saul goes in, he wins the battle, but he doesn't heed the instruction. He holds back some of the goods of that people, particularly their, their oxen and their sheep. And so the Lord, knowing this, sends his prophet Samuel to confront Saul over this. And when he comes before him, Samuel says, is that the bleeding of sheep and oxen that I hear, Saul? What's going on? Do you not remember what the Lord said to you? Did you not heed his instruction? And Saul sought to make an excuse. He's really no different than us. We are very quick to find ways to justify our actions, to try to cover our lack of obedience, And Saul says, oh, oh, no, no, this is really a good thing. You see, I saw the opportunity to keep these animals so that I could offer sacrifices to the Lord. And Samuel confronted him with the word of the Lord and said, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. So opportunity doesn't always equal obedience. Make sure that what you're going forward and doing, and you're doing in uh, the Lord's ways, you're doing according to his word, and you're doing it according to his time. Opportunity doesn't equal obedience. Secondly, external conformity isn't internal change. External conformity isn't internal change. We see this in the verses that speak to us about the procedure. Specifically, those who came out of Egypt that had undergone this procedure of circumcision, they were marked by this sign, this sign of a covenant relationship with God. However, that external act upon them really rendered their hearts no different. All they had was the sign. They had missed the substance. The act of circumcision is simply a sign that would point to a greater reality. It was an outward act that would would speak to a greater relationship that was focused upon one's heart and life. Let me describe it to you this way. Suppose you loaded up the car with your kids and you took off to the happiest place on earth. 
You made your way to Orlando to see the mouse in the house, the magic kingdom. And there you are arriving and you pull down the road that's taking you into the entrance of the park and you do like all the first time families do. You see the sign over the road that says, welcome to the magic kingdom. It's got the characters there on the little side columns and you whip the car off the side of the road so you can take a picture of that moment. Oh, you want it so that you can remember it, but you also want it as proof to show your kids one day. See, we really were good parents to you. We took you to Disney World. So you get over there and you get everybody out and you snap all the pictures. You've got a picture of the sign that points you to Disney World. And then you load everybody back up in the van and then you do the most strange thing. Instead of driving through the sign and heading into the park, you turn the van around and head back north on 75 to come home. You saw the sign, right? You had your picture with the sign, right? I mean, isn't that it? I mean, isn't that the point you you saw? No, that's not the point. The point is not that you see the sign or that you're at the sign or that you've got the sign. The point is that you get into the park, that you get the substance. And so it is with our faith. There are many signs to our faith, which are good signs and gifts that God has given to us. We talked about this last week in the the sign of baptism and the sign of sharing in the Lord's Supper. And there are many others, church membership and participation in ministry. All of these things are good things. But hear me. It's not enough to have the sign if you don't have the substance as well. It's not enough to have an exterior conformity that says you look like a Christian and act like a Christian if inwardly your heart has not been changed by the gospel. External conformity doesn't equate to internal change. This was the charge that Jesus would bring against the scribes and the Pharisees all throughout his earthly ministry. When Jesus would encounter them with the gospel, with his preaching, they would declare to him, we are Abraham's children. We have Abraham as our father. They were making their status, making their claim based upon their status of having an external conformity. Well, it finally got to the point that Jesus said, enough of that. I'm just going to expose you for what you are. So in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 through 28, he unloads on them the prophetical woes. And when Jesus says, whoa, he's not talking about stop. He's talking about the unleashing of judgment that is coming against you. And listen to what he says to them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's not external conformity. It's not dressing up and looking the part that makes us right before God. No, it's an internal change that must occur. Paul picks up on this idea that we see in Joshua 5. In the New Testament, in the book of Colossians, in Colossians 2, he tells us that we too need to experience a circumcision. But not one of the flesh. Paul's not calling us to undergo uh, uh, the knife. He's not calling us to undergo a physical procedure to be right with God. Paul says what we must experience is a circumcision of the heart. 
There must be an operation that takes place on the inside of us. And the only scalpel that can do that work is the gospel. Oh, you want to see your reproach rolled away from you. You want to see your shame and your guilt removed from you. You want to experience no more condemnation. Hear me today. It only comes through Jesus Christ and faith in him. Only the gospel can change your life. Only Jesus can change your heart. So today, don't look at the outside. Don't examine what's going on out here. Don't count how many boxes you may have checked. You've got to look at the inside and realize, has there been a heart change that's taken place? External conformity isn't internal change. And then finally, number three, we need to learn the lesson that faithfulness is successfulness. Faithfulness is successfulness. It would be easy in these first 12 chapters, 12 verses here in chapter 5, to render this time in the nation of Israel as unsuccessful. No advancements were made. No ground was gained. But nothing could be further from the truth. What we see here is perhaps the greatest success that the people will experience in the land. It was successful in the fact that they returned to faithfully walking with God. You remember when Joshua began the story, Joshua 1? The first nine verses were the commissioning of Joshua as the new leader for the nation of Israel. It was a a commission that the Lord placed upon him. He is taking the place of Moses, and in doing that, the Lord is offering encouragement to him. And he tells him, Be strong and courageous. Do not be dismayed. Do not be frightened. Be strong and courageous. Meditate on the word of God day and night. Do not let it depart from your mouth. Then, he says, your way will be met with good success. And all that you do shall prosper. Our ears want to perk up in our culture when we hear that language. Prosperity? Success? I want some of that. How can I be successful, preacher? How can I prosper, preacher? Well, what we discover in Joshua 5, verses 1 through 12, is that prosperity and success in the eyes of God is not related to material possessions. My obligation to you today as a preacher of the Word is not to teach you Sunday after Sunday how you can make it easy in this world. My obligation to you is to teach you how you can be faithful before God because that is the measure of success. Good success is walking faithfully with God. Good success is being faithful to his word. Good success is hearing Jesus on the day when we stand before him proclaim, well done, good, and what? Faithful servant. Faithfulness is successfulness. Paul declared in some of his final words in 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul understood this. Success in life is not by having the most. It's not by being the most recognizable. It's not by being the biggest or the best. 
Success in life is not about trying to be the best parent, mom or dad or son or daughter, the smartest student in the class. Success in life is measured properly by being faithful to God. By running your race and keeping the faith. The Lord paused His people here. He stopped the momentum for a moment. Told them to wait just a minute so that he could remind them of this. Success for them was not in conquering these cities. And if you know the history of Israel in the Old Testament, you realize uh, that success in conquering the cities and possessing the land, it didn't last long for them. Generations down the road, they are expelled from the land. They're, They're taken captive and sent to foreign lands. Why? Because they weren't successful anymore. They forsook the ways of God. They weren't faithful with him. But here, here as they come into the land, the Lord has stopped them so that they may remember, that they may recall, that opportunity isn't always obedience, that external conformity isn't the same as an internal change, and that faithfulness is successfulness. And maybe... That's what the Lord wants you to learn today as well. Maybe he wants you to be still for a moment. To stop the forward momentum. And to examine where you're at in your walk with him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you've given us this opportunity today to gather and thankful for your word that has been proclaimed. And Father, it's my prayer now that your word and the power of your spirit would work mightily in our hearts and our lives. Lord, we are a people who are so busy. We run from one event to the next. From one ministry to the next. And Lord, sometimes in doing that, we're not really following you. We're just seizing an opportunity. We're not walking in obedience. We're not giving priority to that which matters most. So Lord, today, would you help us by your word and spirit to examine our lives, to see where we need to conform, to change, to obey. And Father, I pray today for perhaps the one that's here, And their life is simply marked by an external conformity. They go through the motions. They sit on the pew. They participate in ministry. They've been baptized. They share in the Lord's Supper. But they don't have the substance. It's all an outward act. Their hearts have never been changed because they've never surrendered to Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, I pray today that they would put off that mask. They would end that show. And today, in repentance and faith, they would believe in the gospel of Christ. And that their sin and their burden would roll away from them. And Father, I pray for the success of your people here at Poplar Springs. Not that we would be successful in the way in which the world says we should be but that we would find success in your eyes because we've fought the fight 
finished the race and kept the faith. Let us be successful for your cause. We ask these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.